0: Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. And while you're turning there, consider this question: Is there a perfect family? Is there a perfect family? I know, I know, if you've been around church for any time at all, your quick response to that question is, oh yeah, I know that no one's perfect, and if imperfect people are populating a family, well then, no family's perfect. But, I'm not convinced that we actually believe that statement all the time. I think most of us are not fully aware of just how deeply broken Every single family is. I read a great article this week by Richard J. Pratt Jr. uh, titled, Broken Homes in the Bible. And in it, he shares with us the the theological reality that you can go all the way back to the first family and see incredible brokenness right from the start. He writes, Unfortunately, very few people acknowledge how long and how deeply the human family has been broken. When troubles come to our homes, we almost always pin the blame on someone's personal failures. My family was fine, one mother told me, until my son became a teenager. And as a little aside, I heard that regularly from my mother. We were without problems, a husband once commented and suddenly my wife was unfaithful to me we were a great family a child confided in me but then my dad just got up and left of course we all have personal failures and there's plenty of blame to go around for the problems of our family uh, for the problems our families suffer but statements like these reveal how much we need to look more carefully at the root of our problems No family is fine without problems or great until someone destroys it. Every home is broken from the day it begins. Now why do we need to understand this reality that Pratt exposes us to? Well, for one thing, I think it helps us to come to grips with the family that God has given us. Uh, While we might say that no family is perfect, we might also say that I wish God gave me a different family. But we come back to that question again, how big is your God? Is he always in control? Does he always make the right decision? Uh, Does he know more of the picture than you know? And if that's the case, then we have to believe, agree with this principle. God placed you in your family for a reason. What is that reason? Well, I can't tell you. Only God can. And some of us have no problem with that statement. Others of us, we have experienced deep pain, hurt, anger, resentment. And a principle like that gives us a lot of questions. I've got to tell you, I think Joseph was stuck in that place. I think Joseph was asking the question as he grew up in a home with 12 rough and tumble brothers as he watched his dad who was a pretty imperfect guy and he saw four mothers who were infighting regularly with one another and brothers that were vying for attention in the home. It was a dog-eat-dog world. And poor Joseph, I mean, he was tossed away like a piece of meat. Yet he had had a vision as a young man, didn't he? He saw a picture, and in his youthful arrogance, he thought that that picture, that dream, meant that he was going to be something superior to his other brothers. But now as Joseph is maturing, he's starting to see this vision in a new light. This vision means something of his family coming back together again. His family being reestablished. Well, how in the world is that going to work? Because he's in Egypt and they're in Canaan. How is God going to bring back this incredibly broken dynamic? Well, this morning we're going to see that God literally is willing to shake up the world sometimes in order to bring a family back together again. And as we explore this over multiple sermons, coming to grips with the family that God has given us, in this first sermon in Genesis 42, we're going to see that God works often very powerfully through the conscience. He's given us all a conscience, and we're going to ask the question, why is that? Let's pick up the story. Genesis 42, verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Enough is enough. Those are essentially the words uh, that Jacob extends to his laconic sons. Now, when I think of Jacob saying, Why do you look at one another? There's just this picture of my mom in my head. It's summertime, we're on break, it's about two weeks in. I don't know if you remember this as a young one, but uh, all school year, you're you're sitting there talking about all the things that you're going to do when summer comes. And two weeks later, you find yourself just aimlessly looking at the ceiling. What should I do? What should I do? And mom comes into the room and says, Get up! Get out of here! And get outside and do something! Stop what? Looking at one another. Well, you get the sense that there just hasn't been a lot of forward movement in Jacob's family since Joseph's mysterious death. Family's been stuck... The sons are walking around with a cloud over them that just won't go away. No one talks about it, except for, of course, Jacob. He talks about it all the time. But amongst the boys, you know how this goes. Some things are just not mentioned. We don't talk about those kind of things. It's been 20 years. It's been 20 years since that's occurred. Let's think about 20 years for a moment. 20 years is plenty of time for someone to get married and start a family. In 20 years, you can move to a different part of the country and you can start your life all over again. In 20 years, you can start at the bottom of a company and work your way all the way to the top. In 20 years, well, you can just about conquer the world, but here's one thing that you can't do in 20 years. You cannot erase a guilty conscience in 20 years. This household hasn't moved. There's a skeleton in the closet that is just too big. Stuff it in there. Ignore it. Deny it. Even lie about it all you want, but you're still going to hear the telltale heart thumping away. Let's just clear the air for a moment about God and guilt. God is not a God who delights in unsettled guilt. I I think sometimes we might be misguided in our thought process and think that God just loves to compress us with guilt. He's not interested in that. He's not interested in you living forever marred with the guilt of a past decision. But he is very interested in shaking up your world so that you will deal with your guilt. Isn't that what God is doing here? You see, some skeletons are so sensitive, they cause so much shame in us, that literally it requires an act of God to move us out from hiding. Jacob's words in verse 2 tell us about it. Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us that we may, what, live and not die. And we recognize that this is a worldwide catastrophe. If you go back to Genesis 41-57, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain. So severe that this encompasses the then known world. Now that is an act of God if I've ever seen one. He's literally causing These brothers to be forced to march down to the one place where none of them wants to go. Now, how about you? Maybe enough is enough is something that you need to hear this morning. Is there something in your past that causes you deep shame? Is there brokenness? The real question that I hope we will get into this morning is, how do we deal with guilt? How do we move forward? Are we stuck? Or is there something that can be done about it? And there will be more on that in just a moment. But let's get back into the story. Jacob sends the ten brothers down to Egypt. But he's not over the lost son, so he refuses to send Benjamin, his youngest, to go down with his brothers. Little do these brothers know that they are about to have a one-sided family reunion. Look there at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land... And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Let's step into Joseph's shoes for a minute. I mean, can you imagine standing in your position of prominence, looking down into the masses of crowds, when suddenly you recognize ten distant faces that are very familiar. If you were to be with us last week, you, you might recall that Joseph named his oldest son Manasseh, which means what? God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's House, I believe it was an honest statement. Joseph had determined that he wouldn't allow what was stolen from him, what had happened to define his life moving forward. Yet, here's the deal with life, guys. Sometimes, no matter how hard you try to forget, old emotions, pains, hurts will come ripping up to the top from somewhere deep below, especially when you're looking eyeball to eyeball with the person who hurt you so deeply. But the reunion, as we see in verse 8, is one-sided. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. How could this happen? Let me show you a picture of a handsome young guy I once knew. Now this guy... He's only about 17 years old in this picture. Now imagine with me, you don't have this picture, you don't have it held up next to another picture that you're looking at. His face is just a distant memory somewhere in the recesses of your mind. Now, this guy comes walking in the room. You recognize him, and I know what your first thought is what happened? He was so handsome back then, his wife must have fed him too well. Well, 17 years has a way of changing our appearance, doesn't it? In Joseph's case, it wasn't 20 years. It was also 20 years with 13 of those years being incredibly harsh. I'm sure those bitter years of servitude and imprisonment, they had weathered his features quite well. And so, from the brothers' vantage, they are shaken because there is this Egyptian official speaking through a translator, and the translator says, You are spies and you have come to seek the nakedness of the land. Now, this accusation actually wouldn't have been often left field to these brothers. Uh, The Egyptians would station guards at the Asian boundaries. Because foreigners would come into the land and seek to find weaknesses in their defenses. And just think about this particular situation. Egypt had the foresight to stock up food, right? And there is a worldwide famine going on. Who wouldn't want to come in and control those resources? Nonetheless, the brothers are no spies. They know, and actually The Egyptian official knows, only they don't know that he knows. in an attempt to prove their innocence, they start explaining their credentials through the translator. No, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. We have never been spies. The official just doesn't accept their word. No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. The brothers start singing like canaries. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our our, our father, and one is no more. Bingo. Now Joseph is starting to get the information that he is looking for. Did you notice in verse 9 that it said something very intentional? And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. What dreams? Well, the dreams from 20 long years ago. The first dream was happening right before his eyes. Genesis 37, 7, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaves. Amazingly, this dream is coming to fulfillment, right here, right now. Ten brothers, and they are coming down for what? Grain or sheaves. But there's still a second dream. Genesis 37.9 tells us, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Did you hear the word eleven there? How many stars are standing in front of him right now? Ten. Ten stars. Number 11 is home with an overprotective dad right now. This is why Joseph insists in verses 15 and 16, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him... Bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. How can this family be brought back together again? You know, Joseph can't just initially trust these guys, he can't come out and say, Hey, guys, it's me. Remember the brother that you guys beat up and threw into a pit and sold and and has been down here for 20 years? It's me. Let's catch up. Those kind of conversations don't happen after 20 years that have gone just like that. And frankly, the dream showed the brothers as stars. You see, in the ancient world, any kind of celestial body, when represented in a dream, indicated ruling. Basically, God didn't just have greatness destined for Joseph. He has greatness destined for this family. But how can you get these two bodies to come back together again? Can he trust them? Has there been any movement in the hearts? Has there been any repentance in them? Joseph's words that you may be tested, I believe while the official is saying this, The inner man is also saying this as well. He's not worried that they're spies. He's worried that they might be the same old bunch that would sell you for 20 pieces of silver. Friends, when trust has been shattered, the process of rebuilding trust is not a a simple, I'm just going to ask you for forgiveness kind of dynamic. Uh, Sometimes that can just be mere words. Now that's involved, But notice that it is not a singular act. It is a process. It requires a demonstration of a change of heart. And this can only be evaluated with time and actions. So what is not appropriate in the process is for me, the offended, to hold on to bitterness and anger. I must have a Manasseh moment. And I certainly must never say, God can never change that person. That's always wrong. You know why? Because changing people is God's line of work. We pick up in verse 17. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Let's step into that prison cell for just a minute. In prison, the ten brothers are left with their thoughts, and notice how shrewd Joseph is. He puts them all together in the same room. They've got to look at each other's ugly faces in there. I imagine on day one, well, you're just kind of kicking the ground and no one's saying much of anything. But, oh boy, on day two, someone brings up the name Joseph. Remember, we don't talk about Joseph. Joseph is, in the name, is a name that hasn't passed across our lips for a long time. I avoid it. Mark Twain once remarked that a clear conscience is the sure sign of a bad memory. He's right about that. But it is possible, while we might not always have a clear conscience, it is possible to have a seared conscience. What does it mean to have a seared conscience it means that your conscience no longer sounds off when you're doing something morally wrong in the moment or that you've stuffed something for so long that you feel immense shame and guilt over but you no longer feel that way because you've stuffed it down deep A seared conscience happens and you know it happens when you felt incredibly guilty about something you did the first time but you no longer feel much of anything when you do it the thousandth time. So these three days in prison are very important for these brothers. It activates the conscience. The Egyptian official comes back to them. He's had a change of mind. Look at what he says in verses 18 to 20. Do this And you will live, for I fear God. Now, just imagine the brothers hearing that. What? What does he mean he fears God? How does this Egyptian official know anything about God? He continues on through the translator. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine for your households. And bring your youngest brother to me So your words will be verified and you shall not die. It's in that moment when the brothers turn to one another and there is a little revival that takes place in this custody site. One of the brothers comes out thinking that this guy only speaks Egyptian and he says in Hebrew, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother." And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Now the oldest, Reuben, starts lecturing the other brothers. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning of his blood. I mean, can you believe Reuben? Here you are in this life and death situation and you're just going to, I told you so to everyone? I swear, Reuben. Now, in this moment, Joseph becomes emotional. What has he just heard? He's heard in honest acknowledgement of sin. They can see clearly now, they understand what they did to their brother. Remember when they first offended him, he was this dreamer. And now he is our brother. In fact, Joseph is so caught off guard by this act of repentance that he has to actually leave the room so that he doesn't break character. Erwin Lutzer writes, We have two very different glimpses of Joseph in this story. Privately, he turns away from his brothers to weep, for he is overwhelmed with emotion. But in the presence of his brothers, he appears stern and harsh. The brothers saw only the gruff action of an unkind man. Understandably, they were terrified. What they didn't know was the tender heart of compassion that lay beneath the surface. So what do they see? Well, they see this official bind-up Simeon. And he tells the servants to go pack their bags, only the bags are actually a little heavier than they should have been. And they continue on. Look at verses 25 through 28. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back here. It is in the mouth of my sack. Now, let's ask a question of Joseph. Why is he doing this? Why? There's three kind of different opinions on this. The first opinion is that Joseph is actually setting his brothers up, but somewhere along the way he has a change of heart, so he's not going to sabotage them. Another opinion is that Joseph is just being generous. He doesn't want to take his brother's money from them. A third option is that he did it to see if they were willing to sell another brother. Consider how intentional that he's been so far in every single one of these little tests that he's establishing with his brothers. First, he calls them spies. How did the brothers view Joseph? He was the brother who gave a bad report. And then he puts them in prison for three days. uh, Twenty years ago, they had thrown Joseph into a pit Maybe they needed to understand what it felt like to be totally disempowered, totally helpless, totally in need. And now, the text says that he places money, or it could be translated silver, into their bags. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-eight, And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of what? Silver. The lesson hits home. Verse 28. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Friends, this is the first time in the book of Genesis that Joseph's brothers say the name God. Not once. Not even a God bless you. I mean, doesn't that strike you as odd? They are Hebrews. Some of them even have God's name embedded in their name. They have a father who physically wrestled with God, but not once do they say the name God in all the story until right now. Wow! This is where the lesson's heading. It turns out that these brothers do not first and foremost need to do business with Joseph. They actually need to do business with the God who created Joseph, who is his God and their God. In fact, I would submit to you that God was the most offended party when the brothers stripped Joseph of his clothes, threw him in that pit, mocked his pleas for help, and sold him into Egyptian slavery. David acknowledged this, when he committed adultery, when he had murdered. He said in Psalm 51.4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But the seared conscience prevents us from seeing and understanding what our deepest problem is. What is that deepest problem? Well, we see it here with these brothers. They are far from God. God is not personal to them. Uh, They know plenty of things about God, but they have never come to know God the way that Jacob knows God, the way that Joseph knows God. Let's just put these guys into our own day and age right now. Uh, They are what I would call religionists. They know some Bible answers, they know some Bible questions, though I think they're probably pretty confused on the facts. They might have gotten saved. They might even have come forward and gotten baptized as young lads. Uh, They've served. They've stacked chairs in a church. They come to all of the activities where food is involved, of course. But there has been something cold and dead in their hearts for many years. God is not real to them. God is someone that you hear the preacher talking about Sunday, but then you go out of the church and the rest of your week is just that. It's your week, not his week. But in this moment, when they saw the money, the brothers were struck with the reality of God in their world. What is this that God has done to us? God sees God knows. God is present. God does not forget. God does not gloss over. God sees every act of injustice and He deals with it. The money sends a flood of fear and guilt into their hearts. So now we must ask the big question. What does God have to do with guilt? Friends, this is the center of the story. You see, today we were told that guilt... It's just an unhealthy emotion. You should really just not acknowledge it when you feel it, or if you do acknowledge it, it is something that is destructive in your world and have nothing to do with it. It was Freud who said that he dismissed the conscience and guilt as mere safety devices collectively created to protect civilized order. It is a, an illusion for a narrow mind, But the Bible has a much different perspective on what guilt is. Listen to what Paul says about the right application of guilt in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death. So this is why God is activating the seared conscience. This is the purpose. It's this. Guilt is God's homing beacon to help lost people find their way back to him. It is God's internal barometer that says, something's not right. You need to do business with me. We need to open up a conversation. We need to move forward. Your sin is separating you from me. What is sin? Sin is any act that we have done, whether purposely or unintentionally, that breaks God's moral law. Maybe you aren't really familiar with With God's moral law. But I would say this the conscience is God's subconscious implant of his moral law that hits you in the heart. So even if this is your first time in church, even if you've never cracked open a Bible before, even if you don't know that much about God, I believe that God has put two moral laws into every human heart that we can know and recognize. And the first is that we're supposed to love God, and the second is that we're supposed to love other people. And if that is true, then I think that we can all fall into the emotionality of these brothers. We can see things from their eyes because probably every single one of us in this room has deeply hurt another person. Deeply. Internally, you knew what you did was wrong. You might even still feel the weight of guilt and shame over it. So the real question is, How am I set free from that guilt? Remember, the passing of time does not absolve guilt. The act lingers, even after everyone in the family grows up. Even if you went into court and the judge said not guilty, even when no one knows what you've done, even after decades of new memories that cannot erase old memories. So, what do I do with guilt? Well, there's only one place that I can take guilt and actually find freedom. If God is the most offended party when I sin, then he is also the only one who can deal with my guilt. That's how guilt is absolved. It's not time. It's not ignoring it. It's not saying I don't care. It is God's grace. Now we can bring this full circle. This is the first step for this family's healing. It's also the first step for your healing. Joseph tested his brothers because he knew that they needed to come to terms with his past. This is not some elaborate revenge plot like the Count of Monte Cristo. As we see, this is a pathway to God's grace. He has activated their consciences so that they might turn to God and see that God is real, that He's present, and that He's alive to them. we'll see as we continue to move forward that they turn to Him. There's real repentance, real forgiveness, real restoration. Let's take a look at that handsome lad we took a look at earlier. You know, he reminds me a great deal of these brothers. He grew up in a home where mom and dad spoke often of the Bible. He knew a lot about God. But he didn't say the name of God very often unless it was in the form of a curse word. In fact, he lived for quite some time with a seared conscience. He lived for pleasure. He had misguided ambitions. He was self-serving, self-seeking. And so along the way, he burned many bridges, he hurt many people. But one night, God's internal homing beacon finally got the better of him. As he was thinking about his past, he realized that he had hurt a lot of people, and right now he was suffering the consequences of being hurt by someone else. And God used that hurt to awaken the conscience and he wept and he spoke to God and he said, I have done so much against you. I've lived like you didn't exist. How could you forgive me? Now the boy expected a harsh rebuke. He expected this long drawn out process of repentance where God says, well you have to jump over 50 hurdles before you can come back to me. But that's not what he found. But God was so gentle and kind with his broken soul. Romans tells us that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Well, God will confront our sin to wake us up. When we are finally broken, when we finally come down to our end, we find that we are actually met with this kind, gracious, expectant, loving Heavenly Father. This young man remember truths that he had taken for granted for so long. Jesus died for his sins. Jesus died in his place. Without Jesus, you can never be made right with God. But with Jesus, not one sin that you've committed in the past will go unforgiven. And so we prayed. Jesus, please take me as I am. I commit to following you. And now this boy stands here before you by God's grace and not by his goodness, opening God's word to you, just as broken, just as lost as anyone in this room. God knows how to deal with a guilty conscience and how to remove the guilt and shame that come along with it. Remember, The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So if you have not come to that place where you have committed your life to God through Jesus, Jesus is the access point, Jesus is the door, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then today's the day. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not one of those long, drawn-out decisions. This is that kind of decision where you jump on it. Like someone handing you a winning Powerball ticket, you say, yes, I will take that right now. That's the kind of decision we're talking about here. And even if you have a ton of baggage, well, guess what? So does the person right next to you. They've got a lot. And God, through Jesus, can take that baggage. How do you trust him? Well, it might feel like a seismic shift to you right now, but the Bible says it's actually pretty simple. It's by faith. Faith means that you're willing to lean your trust, your hope, your entire worldview up against the person of Jesus who died for you and as we're going to celebrate next week, who rose again from the dead. If you were ready to make that step of faith, would you pray with me? Bow your heads, please. Lord Jesus, in the best way I know how, I put my trust in you. I realize that up until this point, up until this moment, moment, I have been running from God. I've been far from God. But I know that if I put my faith in you, if I trust in you, that I can come back to God. I can be made right with God. And so I trust you. In the best way I know how, I trust you. Amen.